0: We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world. But primarily, a needy church, which needs the truth of the word to resurrect among us so that heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said, if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Those who are going to be uh, joining us for maybe the first time, welcome. Um, to my podcast series that I'm going to be starting today a brand new one with you guys that I'm excited to kind of unveil and get started on because um, it's one of my favorite ones of the Gospel accounts. We're going to go through the, uh, the book of Luke. Um, And so I'm excited about that. If you've been joining me for a while through these podcasts, then welcome. Um, Thank you for returning and coming back for what God has for us today as we're going to go through the book of Luke, as I said. Now, in this first chapter, it's probably going to get broken up into two different segments, so make sure to listen to this one or... And then piggyback into the second one, as there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to go into, whether it goes into the law, whether it goes into the history of Jews, whether it goes into the traditions of things, whether it talks about, you know, Mary and the Catholic Church and kind of a biblical perspective towards her. There's going to be all kinds of stuff that we're going to kind of unravel and unwrap as we go through this first chapter specifically. And really the first two or three chapters, maybe even four, don't deal a lot with New Covenant theology. ...or establishing a pure doctrine for us, if you will, under the New Covenant. A lot of it is going to be history-based, and some of it is going to be resetting some common misconceptions that are in the church today. And so, it's probably going to be two parts. I'm going to try to do my best to go through it quickly, um, but to get out of it what the Lord wants us to get out of it... ...and not just read it and read over it, but to actually look inside of it to see what is trying to be unwrapped for us today... So with that, I'm going to kind of get into the introduction. Some of it I'm going to maybe kind of skim through and talk briefly about. Um, Other parts I'm just going to read right through it. So in this first one, those first four verses, essentially you're going to find that um, Luke was writing this for a guy named Theophilus. And I'll let you go through and read it. Um, But he's essentially writing this account, this narrative of the life of Christ. For this guy named Theophilus, and from my studies on this, Theophilus was a guy, he was a Greek, who was a very wealthy man, who didn't have certainty for the things that he had been taught. He had been told about Jesus, he had been, you know, probably entertained by the stories and all these things. But it doesn't appear, based off of how Luke starts this out, in Luke chapter 1, and then also his narrative in Acts, about the Acts of the Apostles, which was also written for Theophilus, Who, from what my understanding is, paid Luke to go on voyages with the apostles, with Paul, to kind of have a more accurate idea of what took place from those who were actually eyewitnesses to Jesus and to his life. And he wanted certainty about it. Well, if we know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, then we know that if Theophilus was looking for certainty on these things, that he wasn't sold on Jesus just yet. So I've heard some people say Theophilus was a believer. I don't believe that he was. I believe that the, the scriptures detail us enough to say that he was in flux about it. He was in limbo about it. He didn't know what he believed. And that's why Luke is writing this account of the life of Jesus according to the eyewitnesses. Because Luke wasn't with him. But then also he went on to write the book of Acts at the at the, um request of Theophilus about the apostles and life after Jesus. And Luke is one of my favorite books to go through in the Gospel accounts because it is so simplistic yet so profound on so many levels. Um, a, a couple of things that set it apart just real quick before we get into it. A couple things that set it apart. Luke is writing from a Paulinian perspective. Alright? Paul was the was one of the ones that mostly trained him in understanding the Gospel and understanding who we are to be as Christians, uh, not like Matthew. Matthew is a book that was written primarily to Jews, which is why you 're going to find a lot more of the Torah that is referenced in Matthew and a lot more of Jesus clarifying Torah for these Jews. Luke is more so written to more like a Gentile audience it 's more for New Covenant because he was trained by Paul, all right. And so it kind of sets it apart, but it is one of my favorite books to dissect. And so with that, we're just going to kind of get into it. I told you what it was about. Theophilus wanted a more orderly account so that he had certainty concerning the things to which he had been taught. Getting into verse 5, we're going to talk about the birth of John the Baptist foretold. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, something to really make sure that we understand here that, um, uh, this, he was from the, the, the Levitical tribe, which is the tribe of the, the priest, okay? So he was a priest who served as a priest at the altar, and he was of the tribe of the Levites, alright? And so that's an important thing. Because we have to understand, um, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I talked about this not too long ago, and maybe I will just get into, you know, Luke, I don't think, actually gets into the baptism. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it gets into the baptism, at least not on the subtitles. Um, that could take me a while to explain. Uh, so I'm just going to digress from that and move forward into what he says here. Um, I'll just tell you, it is important to know that Zechariah was a Levite. Um, and so, anyways, uh, verse 6, he says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this is a really crucial thing to understand. Because here's the deal. I. I don't know if you're familiar with a a sect of Christianity that's called Hebrew Roots. And essentially what it is, is it's people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They believe in Jesus as the Christ. But they also believe that we should be keeping Torah in its fullness. All 613 commands. um, There's various forms of what people believe within it. Some would believe that we're free to eat you know, we're free from the dietary restrictions and we can eat whatever we want to, but we still need to keep all the feasts. Uh, we still need to, to do certain things according to the law. Um, some would believe that we still need to um, have the dietary restrictions that, that are on upon us, but they have other freedoms that they. You know, the reality is, is that Deuteronomy makes it clear you don't add or take away any part of it. Like, you don't get to, to decide, oh, this part we do, this part we don't, this part, you know, is, is up for grabs, you know, you can do whatever you want to. That's not the case. In this Hebrew Roots Movement, I've had people who have come to me and who have said that Jesus died on the cross so that we could keep the law in its fullness. That we could be righteous before God in our blamelessness in keeping the law. That, That we couldn't do it before Jesus came and died on the cross. And then once he resurrected, he gave us the ability to walk blamelessly and righteously in all the commandments as before they couldn't do it. Well, what did we just read? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, that they were righteous before him, and that they were blamelessly keeping these things. Well, Jesus hadn't died yet. So we know that that belief that Jesus came so that we could keep the law is actually not founded in Scripture because here's Zechariah and Elizabeth who were blamelessly keeping it. I hope you're tracking with me on this. Because here's the reality. Jesus did not come To die for us so that he could enable us to keep the law of Torah. Jesus died to enable us to walk in grace by the Spirit of God to keep his law, which is to love one another as he loved us in truth. He He didn't die so that we could go back and keep Torah. He died to fulfill Torah on our behalf so that we didn't have to. But that we could move forward and press forward into what he has purchased for us under the new covenant. And as according to Ephesians 2, it says that the cross has actually redeemed us and purchased us. And I'm paraphrasing the beginning part of it. From the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And I encourage you to go look into the Greek of what that law of commandments expressed in ordinances translates to. And so, with that that said... I want us to understand that there are teachings of man that are not founded on scripture. They're all over the place. And this is one of them. Jesus did not die so that we could go back and keep the law as if we were incapable of doing it beforehand. That's not his purpose in it. Because we see Zechariah and Elizabeth that they did it. And so uh, moving forward, he says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years, which was considered a reproach, a shame among women whenever they were not able to bear children. So despite, and you've probably been here in this place before, despite your obedience, despite you walking the way that you need to in Christ, despite you doing everything right, despite you doing all those things, sometimes things don't work out in your perceived favor. Sometimes you think, man, why, why does things work out? David had the same thing, right? Didn't he plea for it in Psalms whenever he was writing about it? So why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that those who aren't doing the right thing, why is it that they actually prosper and seem to get what they want? But here I am doing what I'm supposed to and it doesn't seem like God is there for me. It doesn't seem like things are working out in my favor. Well, I don't have an answer for that. What I do know is that there is an enemy and I do know that God is going to refine us through trials. I do know that oftentimes, as First Peter 4 says, He says, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And oftentimes the gospel life, that singularity of the cross in our life, is backwards to our personal perception of what we think is blessed. We think blessed is when we have a lot of money, when things are going well, and yet that wasn't even the life of Jesus who was blessed beyond anyone else. Jesus, his life was a life of suffering. It eventually led him to a cross. This innocent, sinless man who died on the cross for sinners. Paul had the same thing. Go look at his life in 1 Corinthians 4 and Second Corinthians 11 and 12 when he talks about it. He said his life was filled with suffering, but he was blessed. He didn't have a whole lot of money, but he was blessed. He talks about in 1 Corinthians 4 that he was um, persecuted, that he um, was uh, uh, the scum of the earth to the world in appearance. But he was blessed. And so I don't have an answer for why oftentimes we do the right thing and God seems to, uh, or we feel like he ignores it and just doesn't notice. Let me tell you, God does. He notices when you're doing the right thing. Because look at what he goes on to do with Elizabeth. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Which I love the name meaning of John. We, th- we think in America, at least, simplistic It's kind of a common name. Like John Smith, it's just a lot of times what we say is just a common name. John Doe, right? This is a, you give, that's the name given to people who don't have a name. You don't know who they are. John Doe, it's just a simple name. But his name means Jehovah is a gracious giver. And I love that because Zechariah and Elizabeth, I'm sure in their praying, I'm sure in their lives, despite their obedience, they had to have had the thought of, why, why don't we have a kid? Why can't we get pregnant? What's, what's wrong? Why is God not opening my womb? And in the right time, God comes through in their faithfulness and He says, I'm going to open your womb and He's going to serve a purpose beyond what you probably ever thought He would. God's going to open your womb, Elizabeth. Zechariah, he hears your prayers. And I'm faithful and I will give to you in the right timing what you need and what glorifies me. And oftentimes it's going to suit a purpose much bigger than what you ever thought would be done. So if you are in that place right now, you're being obedient, you're being faithful, you're doing what you're supposed to. I'm going to tell you, don't give up. I'm telling you and I'm telling myself, don't give up. Because God will reward those who diligently seek Him. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. Chapter 6, when He says, you know, in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, He says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And then in verse 6, He says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would um, draw near to Him must believe that He is, that He exists, and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. If you're in that place, don't give up. God will come through. God will reward your obedience. Whether it's in this life or the next, it doesn't matter. You will get a reward. God does notice. He is watching. Stay faithful and stay obedient. Because as we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth, God rewarded them. He gave them a son. And his name was John. And he was going to be the greatest born of woman up until Jesus. And so he goes on and we see that Zechariah is kind of doubts this. He's like, wait a second. We've been praying for a child this entire time, and now you tell me that this angel is appearing to me, and he's going to say that I'm going to have a son, and his name is going to be John, I'm going to have joy and gladness and rejoice at his birth. And and, and in this one, it says that in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, meaning Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. As it says about him, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord, preparing the way of the Lord. He was going to serve the purpose of being the herald of Jesus Christ Himself. The greatest born of woman up until Jesus. There was not Elijah, not Moses, nobody who came before him, not David, not Josiah. None of these men who had gone before him were greater than John the Baptist. And I'd encourage you, go study his life a little bit of how he lived in the wilderness, eating wild honey and locusts, until the day of his showing forth at the age of 30, whenever he came forth and he says, Now is the time. Zechariah in verse 18 said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You see, Zechariah kind of doubted. He, he wasn't necessarily saying this isn't going to happen. He's just saying, I don't see how it's possible. I'm an old man. It's like, haven't you read the story of Abraham and Sarah? This says, the angel answer, answered him, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. There's a consequence to his doubting. Many of us will look at that and be like, well, that's, that's pretty harsh. I mean, that's a natural doubt to have. And yet for God, that's not good enough. God, did, God expects faith from his people. He doesn't expect us to, to try to um, teeter on the edge of doubt and faith. He wants his people to be faithful. And there was a lesson that he had to teach Zechariah in this. It wasn't that Zechariah sinned. But there was a lesson that had to train Zechariah because if you notice as we get into this one I actually don't even know if it does um, I don't even know if it does get into this one but when John is born Zechariah is the one that stands up when all the relatives are like you don't have anybody named John in your family you need to have a good strong family name and carry the, 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 the name you know into the next generation and he's the one who writes on the tablet and says his name will be John, and immediately he's able to speak you see there's a lesson that God was having to teach him in his doubting and still in his love this wasn't a lesson that he was angry with Zechariah this was a lesson of love that he was trying to instruct Zechariah to teach him in this and he does the same thing for you and I there's times where it's a natural thing for us to sometimes question and be like I don't know how God's going to come through in this and sometimes God has to take something away from us in order for us to learn to trust Him. And that's what He's doing for Zechariah here. And so we see this, and just kind of kind of paraphrase some of this. The, the people are wondering why he's delayed in the temple, like what's going on? Come on, you're just supposed to light some incense and then come back out. They didn't know maybe he had died, maybe he had sin in his life, maybe there was something going on and God struck him down dead. I don't know what was going on, but they're questioning why he's delayed. And he comes out and they realize that he's unable to speak and that he had seen a vision in the temple. And it says this in 24, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, as I said before, it was considered a shame, a disgrace, actually, for a woman who was barren to not be able to have kids. A lot of times it was perceived upon them that they had sinned. That they had something that was wrong in their life. That they were disobedient to God. That they were unfaithful to Him. And it was considered a reproach. It was considered a shame for a woman to not have a child. And I don't know about where you're listening from in this, but I do know that in America it is oftentimes perceived a blessing for people to not have children. I've heard a lot of people who have said and they get married, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I want to enjoy my singleness or... or uh, not being a parent and just having this time with my spouse and I want to enjoy this and I don't want kids I've heard people say I don't want kids I I just am blessed to be married isn't it interesting how the perspective has changed because back then it was considered a shame upon a woman to not have children but today it's a blessing and in fact Jesus even prophesied that I believe it's in Luke later on when he talks about that there's going to come a time where people are going to say blessed is the womb that has not borne and the breast that has not nursed. There's going to come a time where people are going to say you know, like the Chinese proverb that um, children tie the feet. They bind you. They, they limit you. Let me just tell you Psalms 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord. The context of it is that it's our job to let God have control of the womb, to say, God, however many children you want me to have, because that's what he says in the very beginning of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house. And I encourage you, go, if you can, go look into the Hebrew of that word for builds and the word for house, and you're going to find that it pertains to family. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. He says you can rise up early all you want to, you can go to bed late, but all you're doing is eating the bread of anxious toil because God did not have control of building your family. And that's also inclusive not only of how you raise them, but how many you have. God might say your womb is closed, you get none. God might say your womb is open, you get ten. The point is, is that you don't put a hand in God's face and say, I only want two. So I'll do whatever measures I need to, to only get two or three or one or none or seven. The point is, is that if God is Lord, then he's Lord of all. And that includes your womb, which is Romans 12, when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Ladies, that includes your womb. Genesis thirty twenty three, you find this chapter kind of filled with this drama that takes place between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel and their servants. And, and there's this backbiting that's going on in which Rachel sees Leah popping out kids. And so she's like, I want kids. Give me children or I die. Jacob and Jacob get ang- gets angry with her. It's like, I'm not the one in control of the womb. That's not me. And so she then says, Hey, here's here's my servant. Take my servant. So he goes into the servant and, and and they she pops him out a few kids, and then Rachel gets jealous, and Leah, and, and this is this whole big drama, this soap opera, if you will, of what's going on. And this in verse 23, if I remember correctly, it's Rachel, and she she finally, God allows her womb to get opened. And she says these exact words. That God has now looked upon me and taken away my reproach among people. This word in the Hebrew, it's used, it means a disgrace or shame. In the Greek, it's anidos, and it means the same exact thing. Elizabeth, Rachel, they both looked at it and they're like, I had shame upon me because I didn't have children. And it's crazy to me about how I look out in the world today and most women, I don't want to say most women, a lot of women, consider themselves blessed because they don't have children. And I see a lot of women who look at other women who look at, uh, you know, who are mothers and they look at people who are just married and they're like, I'm jealous. I'm jealous that you just get to spend your time with your husband. I'm jealous you don't have these little noses to have to wipe and these diapers to change and you you get a rest at night and I have to, Let me just tell you, your work as a mom is some of the most important work that you will ever do in your entire life. If not the most important work outside of serving Jesus. Man, don't lose sight because a culture has given this perception that having kids is a burden. Don't look at the culture. Look at the, what the Word of God says. In your faithfulness, in your obedience, let God have control of your womb. Let Him do with it what He wants to. And raise them accordingly as what a mother is supposed to raise her children as, as Titus 2 3 through 5 says. And don't blaspheme the Word by trying to raise them in a way that suits your life better. Don't raise them in a way that goes in reflection to the culture more than it does to Christ. Don't raise them in a way. That is the easier way. And a way that validates you more than it does them. In Christ. Don't blaspheme the word. By raising them outside of what a mother is supposed to raise their children as. And praise God for the mothers who do. Praise God for those mothers who look at the word and they say, here's what the word says. And I don't care what culture deems as acceptable or unacceptable. I don't care what the normalcy of the culture is. I'm going to raise them according to what the word says. I'm going to be a wife and a mom according to what the word says. You can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 of what God says for a wife. You can look at Titus 2, 3 through 5. You can look at Proverbs 14, 1 even when it says, the wisest of women builds her house, but work with her own hands tears it down. So when you start trying to build your house the way you want it built, it tears it down. But the wisest of women, she focuses on her house. She focuses on her children. And that's her motivation in life. And that's her servicehood to God. And so he goes on in this one and that alone is a topic that I could probably go on and what you're going to find in these first couple chapters is we're going to hit and highlight some pretty main emphasis uh, or pretty main points and emphasize those points but we're not going to go super in depth on them Um, but that is because this is such a long chapter I don't want to break it up into three parts I typically don't even like breaking things up into two parts Um, I like to go systematically through it chapter by chapter by chapter because then we don't lose the flow of what's being written however with this one being so long, it's almost almost going to be impossible without this being an hour and a half segment um, to make this doable, to go through the whole thing. So I'm going to emphasize some things, and that's all with the encouragement of you getting into the Word and studying them out deeper. Going to the Lord, saying, God, give me wisdom as I go through the Word. I need you to guide me. I need you to to show me and instruct me what you want me to say or what you want me to, to glean from the text, to reap From the harvest of righteousness that's sown in your word. And so I'm going to emphasize certain things. But I want you to go search them out. Now going into 26. Moving on. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel um, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So Joseph was of the lineage of David. Mary was of the lineage of David. Both of them came from two separate sons, but still had the same lineage up to David. All right, you're going to find that in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 4. So you're going to find that Jesus was actually born um, of the lineage of kings, the tribe of Judah. He was of the lineage of kings. He was not of the lineage of the Levites. And that's important to understand why John the Baptist had to baptize Jesus. Because a Levite had to baptize somebody in order to put on the holy garments. And now there's this transcendence that goes from the physical to the spiritual. I don't have time to dissect. But I'm just going to kind of throw that out there for you guys to study. It says the virgin's name was Mary. And here's what's interesting about Mary. I know that there are certain sects. That have um, idolized Mary. Have put her up on a platform. And I could go into the depths of it. As to why you know going into paganism. There's always a female goddess. With her male son that is worshipped. You can take it back to Rome. You can take it back to Isis. Even in the beginning with Nimrod her son. It's Every pagan religion has always had that. A female goddess. Or a female that is revered. And venerated or worshipped. And idolized. And her male baby son. Okay, but Mary's name—do you do you know that Mary's name actually means rebellious? And there's this this almost this picture that's now being painted that even goes back to Eve because Eve was the one who became a transgressor, right? She was the one who rebelled against God's precept. Did God really say? And who was the first one that ate? It was Eve. She was the first one that rebelled. Now, mankind's eyes, sin did not enter into this world through Mary. I'm sorry, through Eve. It did through Adam. Because it wasn't until Adam ate that the eyes of both were opened. And so Mary, I'm getting this confused. Eve is the one who rebelled. In the same way now, God is painting that same picture to choose a woman in which rebellion first came into the world. Right? She became, as First Timothy chapter 2 says, that she became the transgressor. Right? She's the one who sinned first, if you will. And so now God is now kind of doing a mirror image of that. And He's saying, Now, through that rebellious, I'm going to bring salvation. Because through the rebellious before came death. Now I'm going to bring through Mary the rebellious salvation. Now listen to this. This is just an interesting encounter because in some of these variations of religions today who would idolize Mary and hold her up, primarily Catholicism, um, and I could go back into the origins of Catholicism I could tell you some of the heresies that are there. um, It's believed that Mary was without original sin. So in in many um, uh, ideologies and, and Theology within uh, Catholicism is believed that Mary was without original sin, that she was actually the Immaculate Conception, in which, because she was a sinless woman, Jesus couldn't be born through a sinless or through a, a sinful vessel, that she had to be sinless. In order for Jesus to be born through her. And so this is how a lot of Catholics would believe this. And that's part of the reason they would worship Mary. And say that she's blessed. And say that she's highly favored. And say that she's... um, And I could even make a a statement off of quotes that I've heard. That she is um, equal to Jesus. And some quotes would even say that she would be higher than Jesus. And this, this interaction that goes on. It's funny to me that, or interesting to me, that it says the virgin's name was Mary and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Why would Mary be troubled at this saying that she was favored before God and that she was blessed? Why would she be troubled at that? Why would she be perplexed? Like, wait a second. Why would you say that I'm finding favor with God? Why would you say that I'm blessed if she had never sinned? And that's going to come into play here when we get into verse 47 in just a little bit. But I want us to to really look at this. I want us to look at the text. Because my Bible teaches me that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was only one who was sinless and his name was Jesus Christ. There was no one else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that would include Mary. So this idea that Mary was free from original sin, that she was a sinless vessel, is all man's teachings and ideas not derived from Scripture. And I'm going to prove that here in just a second if you stick with me. It says she was greatly troubled at the saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now she would have known, because Gabriel more than likely would have been speaking Hebrew to her. He wouldn't have been speaking Greek, and he wouldn't have said his name shall be Iesos. His name shall be Yeshua. Now that goes back to Joshua whose name in um, Hebrew is also Yeshua. He was the deliverer of his people that led them into the promised land when Moses failed. And Moses failed. And he could not enter the promised land. All he could do was look on it. Just like it says in Hebrews that the law could not make anyone perfect. It could not bring us into the promised land. All it could do was look upon the one who could. And Joshua came and he crosses the Jordan, he brings the people into the land of Canaan, into the promised land and he's the one that led the people there. And in the same way, Jesus' name, Yeshua in the Hebrew, he was going to be the one who was going to lead his people to the promised land. To salvation. In a way that the law could not do. She would have recognized this when he said his name shall be Yeshua he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his and of his kingdom there will be no end man can you imagine that being said to you like you've been well specifically for her being probably this 12 13 year old girl right who's never been with a man she's engaged essentially to joseph betrothed to him she hasn't been with joseph and all of a sudden she says, or Gabriel comes to him and says, um, you're going to have a child that's going to be born of the Holy Spirit. And his name is going to be Yeshua. And he's going to basically um, take the throne that of his kingdom. There will be no end. That's a, that's a pretty interesting statement to be said to her. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now what's interesting is, why didn't Gabriel do the same thing to her that he did to Zechariah? I don't have an answer for that. I I can't tell you why God does one thing and doesn't do the same thing to another for the exact same reason. She was doubting. How's this going to be? I don't have an answer. What I do know is that Gabriel didn't do it. He says, um, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Meaning will overshadow your weakness, your inability. That's what he's stating here. And let me just tell you, that's what the Holy Spirit does. If we allow Him to. Because listen to what Mary's response was. Please do not miss this in your life and what the text says. The Holy Spirit wants to overshadow your weakness or inability. That's why it says the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. If we allow the Spirit to overtake... To overshadow our weakness, to say, I know that I'm incapable of doing this, but you, God, you can. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. Philippians 4 13. His divine nature has granted to me all things that pertain to a life of godliness. 2 Peter 1 3. I get and understand that in of In and of myself, in my flesh, I don't have the ability to live the Christ-like life. But praise God that His Spirit in me does. And if I will allow the Holy Spirit to overshadow my inabilities, to overshadow my weakness, then I believe that the same Spirit who is in Jesus Christ is also in me. And that I can do the same things that Christ did because the Word declares it. Any other teaching outside of what I just stated would be heresy. Because it is not founded in the truth of the text. It's only in the inconceivabilities of man and the doubt of man. Listen to what Mary says. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Meaning that Jesus will still be part of the deitic bloodline. Even though he is born of man, it was the Holy Spirit and the seed of God in woman that created the Son of God to be born on this earth, so therefore he is still part of the bloodline of deity. Now, you could go listen to my Hebrews 2 podcast, and you can find some interesting things about that that I'm not going to go into here. But he says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month, with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me or let it be to me according to your word. You see, Mary believed it. And even though she knew she had the inability in and of herself. She gave permission for the Holy Spirit to overshadow her. And in the same way in your Christian life, you have to do the same. In Luke 6.40, it says that you could never be greater than your teacher. It's not, it's not talking about, in Luke 6.40, that, that um, you, you could be the same type of Lord as Jesus is. It's not that you can hold the same position, it's that you can bear the same image. Please listen to what I'm saying on this. I am so sick and tired of hearing teachings out there today that say that we can't ever look like Jesus. We can't ever walk like He walked. We can't ever be like He was. We're just sinners who are saved by grace. No, that's who you were. That's not who you're supposed to remain as. The Word teaches that you have everything you need to live a God-like life just as Jesus did. That you can do all things, that nothing will be impossible for him who believes. Even in 1 John 2.6 it says that the one who abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Not just strive for it, but do it. And God wouldn't command something for us to do in Christ if he couldn't fulfill it through him in us. Mary gave the permission for the Spirit to do it. She became a willing vessel and she let the Spirit overshadow her weakness. And I'm telling you, Christian, you need to do the same. That when you're tempted, when you're going through a trial, when you are um, you know, being tempted unto sin, whatever it might be, you give the Holy Spirit permission in your life and you say, Holy Spirit, I need you to take over because in and of myself there is nothing good and I can't do this. So Holy Spirit, I need you to do it through me overshadow my weakness and take over be it done to me according to your word man if you could just recite that in your mind when you're suffering temptations or trials and you just say holy spirit god christ be it done to me according to your word overshadow my weakness and he will it goes on but because also guys she would have known the backlash she knows what the law said about a person who is betrothed to another man and then shows up pregnant and is not his. She would have known what that meant for her and she still trusted her life to him. It says, in those days Mary rose and went to, with haste. She wanted to go see Elizabeth and so she went to Elizabeth and when she gets there, John the Baptist who's still in the womb, he leaps Because he sees, he notices that the Savior has approached, right? And so, um, as Elizabeth cries out, she's like, Oh, Mary, you are blessed, right? And she was. She was favored. She was blessed. And she should still be called blessed. She just shouldn't be venerated or worshipped. She shouldn't be idolized. She should be placed on a podium at the same level of or greater than Jesus Christ himself. And let me just tell you, I can share you quote after quote after quote after quote. One of them saying that you will not get into heaven apart from Mary. Let me just tell you, that is heresy and borderline blasphemy. It just goes on and, and it says this. In verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, so from Mary's own mouth, this is what follows. Now, before I read that, I want you to understand that I was talking to a Catholic one time when I was at work. This is 10 or 15 years ago. And we were talking about Mary, and, and she was telling me about how their, their viewpoint of the Catholic Church is that Mary was without original sin, that she was sinless, otherwise Jesus couldn't have been born into it. a typical thing. I already knew that, that many Catholics believe that. And I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, what does it mean to have sinned? And she said, well, it means that you've messed up. It means that you've done something wrong. And I said, exactly. And I said, and what does it mean for somebody to be a Savior, like it says about Jesus? And she said, well... It means that you needed saving because you sinned. Like we all need a Savior. And, and we all need a Savior because we've all sinned. And I said, I totally agree. Now go read Luke chapter 2, 47. So I turned to my Bible and, and she started reading it. She says, and, and, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she paused and I said, Did you catch that? Based off of what you just told me, which is biblically accurate, that the reason that we need a Savior is because we've sinned. How is it that Mary just said that she needed a Savior if she had never sinned? And she just looked at me perplexed, and she just said, sometimes you just have to have faith. And I said, oh, I do. But I have faith in what is written, not in what I want it to be written as or not as what I've always been told here's the truth Mary was sin, was a sinner to the extent I don't know what I do know is that she had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because the word declares it what I do know is that she needed a savior what I do know is that she was greatly troubled at the fact that God said that she was favored and blessed and the only reason that those three things point to The only thing that it can point to is that she was a sinner. She was not free from original sin. She was not sinless. She was not the Immaculate Conception. Does she need to be blessed and honored for what she allowed the Spirit to do in her? What she allowed God to do through her? Absolutely. But does she need to be venerated or worshipped? Absolutely not. It goes on and, and she has this you know, thing where she talks about where he's done great things for her. Holy is his name. She says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That's, that's never going to end. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him even. as a lot of people want to talk about Jesus, the friend of sinners. No, he's not. That was labeled about him by the Pharisees when they saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says from his own mouth in John 15, you are my friend if you do what I command you. He says, we have a relationship if you're going to do what I say. If you're not going to do what I say, then you are not my friend. Please understand what that says, because that's another heretical statement that's out there today. Jesus is not the friend of sinners. That was labeled about him. He is the friend of those who honor him. The friendship of the Lord of Psalms says, is for those who fear Him. And so a lot of these things, she says from generation to generation, and she goes on, she talks about all these things, He's filled the hungry with good things, the rich He's sent away empty, meaning those who are full of themselves, those who are full of this world, who only seem to be self-indulgent, He says, I'm going to send you away empty. But those who are poor, those who don't have a whole lot, He says, I'm going to fill you with Me. It's actually prophetic to the gospel message. And it says that Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Guys, there's so many things in that we could have gone deeper in. There's so many things that I could have even expounded upon um, more than what I did. And some things I didn't even point out. But the reality is, is in this first chapter of Luke, Luke is setting the stage Um, Through these stories that he's talking about, the the birth of John the Baptist, the story of Mary, and the story of what we're going to get to, the birth um, even of, um, I'm sorry, the the birth of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, which many people use as, as a Christmas story. There's so many things that are in this. I'd encourage you to get into the word, to dig for yourself, to start studying, because we know that there's a promise in Proverbs eight seventeen that says that I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And that's the cry of wisdom. It's not enough for you to just listen to the Bible. It's not enough for you to just listen to me. It's not enough for you just to listen to your pastor. You yourself need to get in the word in conjunction with those other things. You need to have isolated time to just get in the Word and study it and seek the face of God. Not being distracted. Man, I can't tell. I get so. I'm just, I'm tired of hearing so many people who say that they love Jesus, who have a walk with Jesus, and yet all they ever do is just listen to their audio Bible while they're, you know, doing other stuff. That's not seeking the face of God. I hear it all the time. Open up your book, open up the Bible, and spend some time undistracted with Him. Because if you don't have the time to do that, I guarantee you, God will not have the time to reveal Himself to you in the way that He wants to. Spend some time with Him. Consistently, daily, and watch what He'll do. It might be awkward at first. You might not get anything out of it at first. But just as Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful and they continued to do what they know they needed to do, eventually God came through. Stay faithful. Stay obedient. Do what you're supposed to. And God will come through. Even in the simplest, sometimes most mundane things of just getting your Bible out, reading, and doing it even if you're not getting anything from it. You keep doing it because God will come through. Amen. Y'all be blessed.